Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. Check back weekly to stay up to date with what God is doing here in the life of our church. To learn more information, you can find us online at sturkey.church. Our prayer here at the church at Sturkey Hills is that you are moved by this message. Guys, thanks for tuning in and have a blessed week. Well, amen. I would invite you to open up your Bibles or your device to John chapter 1. And we're going to begin this new journey, which we kind of began last week, but I'll own it. I didn't even get to the outline. I got the, the introduction. So uh, I was also, we have five points today, and somebody asked me, you're actually going to get five points? Yes, I am. I make no promises, but I say, yes, I am. We're going to cover these things, and listen, I want you to know that at the end of today's message, if you will listen and engage, take some notes, stay with me, you will learn more about the Jesus who maybe you call your Savior, maybe you call your Lord, maybe you call him some distant historical figure who really existed, maybe you call him a Bible character, you will learn more about Jesus today, and it will help you understand that what we all need in this life is a bigger Jesus. Now tell your neighbor you need a bigger Jesus. And often what we do is we put Jesus in a box, man. We, 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 we package him up as if we can understand and define him and fully get who he was. You can't. Okay, and, and I hope today that when you leave, you'll know that you have a bigger Jesus. He's right there waiting for you. All you have to do is embrace him and claim him, and he will be bigger than you ever thought possible. And so in John chapter 1, we see this packaged in what we're going to look at today, four simple but profound and theologically deep Bible verses. John chapter 1, we're going to look at 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump down. We're going to see verse 14. So if you've got your device or you've got your Bible open, let's read a few verses. Beginning in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. And the Word was with God in the beginning, and all things were created by Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Now look down at verse 14. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. Now on the surface you say, well, I, I just don't see a whole lot of Jesus in that. Well, you do, but you don't. You may not see it just yet, but let's unpack it. And you'll see that he's talking about the person of Jesus, God in the flesh. In fact, he, he begins by calling him the Word. Now, I want you to understand what the Word is in this. It's not a word. I told you not long ago, I, I saw an article or uh, there was an award ceremony where Oprah Winfrey, easy for you to say, uh, Oprah Winfrey said, the greatest thing you can ever do in your life is share your truth. That's a lie. That's a lie straight out of the kingdom of darkness. You, apart from God's truth, you don't have a truth, all right? So the greatest thing you will ever share is not your truth, but the truth. And the truth is the truth because it is the word. It's not a truth. It's not a word. It is the truth. It is the word. Now, the word in Greek 
is logos. And the Greek word logos simply means uh, a divine word. It represents the manifestation and the intention of the heart of God. All right? And you say, well, why well, you got to throw some Greek on us? I, I, I want to remind you, I am not a Greek scholar. Don't pretend to be. Okay? I'm just simply not that smart. All right? But I want you to know how you can figure it out. You can get on your phone. You can get on your computer. You can go to Gateway Bible. Okay? And once you get there, you can look up any verse in the New Testament. Because the New Testament is Greek. Old Testament is Hebrew. You can any verse in the New Testament. And you get to choose what translation you want. You go to the Mount's Interlinear Reverse New Testament. And what, what you'll find there is every verse in the New Testament will be written as you look it up. And right below it, it'll be in the Greek. You probably can't read it. But if you find a word like logos, or excuse me, like word, you click word, it comes over and opens up this little window. It says logos, and it defines it. Often it'll have a little speaker there. You can hit it, tell you how to say it. It'll show you everywhere in the Bible where it's used. All right? I want you to know that you can do your own homework. You can get in, dive into this word of truth, and learn it for yourself. And so... He says, it is the logos of God. It is God in word form. Now, let me tell you something about the word of God. The word of God and the person of God can never separate. They, they can never be separate. They're always together. Why? Because God is perfect and holy and right and just, and his word is holy and perfect and right and just. It's why in Revelation there's a strict warning not to add to or take away anything from this book. Because when you start adding things to this book, you've, you've contaminated the perfection, the sovereignty, the holiness of his word. You've taken the word and you've added a word to it and it dilutes and changes its intention and its purpose. So God and his word are eternally linked. And so everything happens, I want you to hear this and see this, everything that God has ever elected or chosen to do in his sovereignty, he's done it with the word, okay? Now watch this because this is beautiful. Let's go back to the beginning, okay? Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? We, we, we read that, we accept that, we own that. Now we know he made it, we know he made it perfect, but, but how did he do it? Okay, listen, listen, verse 3. This is what it looks like, the whole thing. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and the light was good, all right? The, the whole thing. This, this, this is how he does things. He speaks it, it happens, and it's perfect, okay? Now, let's keep, maybe you're not convinced. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse, and it was so. Verse 9, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered. It was so, it was good. Verse 11, God said, let the land produce vegetation. It was so, it was good. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights. It was so, it was good. Verse 20, God said, let the water swarm. It was good. Verse 22, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Verse 24, God said, let the land produce living creatures. It was so, it was good. Verse 26, then God said, let us make humankind in our own image. Verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Verse 29, then God said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant. And it was so. And 31, which is the beauty of it all, he says, God saw that all he made... 
all he spoke, all he worded into existence, it was very good. You see that? From the very beginning of existence, God does what he does through the word, okay? It doesn't change. The absolute introduction of King Jesus, he is introduced as the Word. Why? Because the Word represents the intentions and the desires of the heart of God. Ultimately, when Jesus, in verse 14, puts on skin and and hangs out with us, it is a full bodily demonstration of the intentions and the heart of the Word, which is God's mind. So, That's what the word means here. And so understanding the word will help us embrace what we need, and that is a bigger Jesus. Tell your neighbor you need a bigger Jesus. Okay? And the bigger Jesus is already there. He's just waiting for you to understand how big he is and embrace him for the greatness of who he is. Now, if you majored in journalism or if you are a a writer you would learn about this thing called the five W's. Who's heard of the five W's in writing? Okay, Who, what, when, where, and why. And whether you're writing a police report, whether you're writing an article for the newspaper, whether you're writing a, a, a biography about someone, you need to answer those questions. Who, what, when, where, and why. Okay, the five W's. Well, John didn't go to journalism school, okay? And yet he gets it right in these first few verses of his gospel according to John. And that's what we're going to see today. So on the back of your worship guide, they're listed for you, and we're going to cover them. And I want you to see who it is, this bigger Jesus that, that, that John is trying to get us to know. The first one is, when was Jesus? Now, if, if, if somebody asks you that on the street or in school or in your family or whatever, when was Jesus? Immediately, we would go back and we'd say, well, you got the baby Jesus. You know, he's laying in a manger. You know, we've all seen the nativity. You got Mary bound down there, you know. You got a couple little shepherd boys over there, some sheep, you know. And maybe the wise men might be in the picture, even though we know they didn't come till later. And you got Joseph. He's right there about 2,000 years ago, right? That's where we go, okay? And, and, and for somebody that's maybe a little, you know, astute, they're going to say, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. Jesus showed up at the, in the womb of his mother Mary at the virgin conception you know, scholar that he is. Okay, and and then, but if you really want to know the truth, that's not when Jesus was. Jesus was way, way, way before that. Tell your neighbor, Jesus goes way back. Now, here's what he says in John 1a. We're going to break this thing down. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, we've all... We've talked about the Word. We've talked about the full manifestation of the Word being Jesus. Let me just go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. We'll see it in 14. When it talks about the Word, it's talking about Jesus. You see, when, 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 when you read this book, this is Jesus on paper. When you read this book from beginning to end, it points to the person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't see him in a book, one of the 66, read the book again. It points, it all points to Jesus. Okay, and we're going to see that's the bigness of 
Jesus. And, and so when, when it says now that in the beginning was the Word, it, it really says in the beginning was Jesus. G, that same expression in the beginning is the same expression used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. Now, let me explain something. In the beginning means when the beginning began. That's what it's talking about. Jesus was already there when the beginning began. When you find God introducing time into our world, because we're creatures that live by time, Jesus was beyond time. When you look at all that happened in Genesis chapter 1 at the creation, everything that was created did not include Jesus because Jesus was already existing before creation began. Okay, I want you to understand, we're talking about a bigger Jesus, and the gospel, according to John, reveals a bigger Jesus. It talks about a Jesus who was before anything existed. Now, I said this last week, many of you weren't here probably, so I'm going to say it again. How do you know what God is? How do you know who God is? How do you know what God is not? How do you know what is not to be included in Godness? Here it is. Anything uncreated is God. Everything created is not God. Say it again. Anything uncreated before creation ever happened, that's where God was. That's who God is. Everything else, the, 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 the things we see, the things created are not and were never intended to be God. It's so, well, Joel, you're, I don't, you're building a case off of a part of a single verse. And as pastor, you warn us not to take things out of context. How do you know you're not taking this out of context? That's a really good question. I hope you thought that, okay? Because always question your preacher. It's okay. John chapter 8, later in this gospel, Jesus said, I tell you the solemn truth, before Abraham came into existence, I am. Jesus said he was God from the beginning. He says, you, you remember how God introduced himself to Moses? He said, I am. You are who? I am that I am. What, I'm, I am everything that you ever thought. I am. That's all he said. Okay? And, and, and later that travels on into Abraham. And, and now Jesus says, you place your faith in Abraham, your father. But I'm telling you, before Abraham ever existed, I am. I, I am right there before he ever got here. Okay? That's what he's saying. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah's writing a prophecy about the coming of God in the flesh, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world coming. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 9, he says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. He says, And the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Eternal eternal father prince of peace he says the one that's going to come he has eternity in his dna he has eternity in his name it is who he is so when it talks about when you talk about when was jesus we're talking about jesus was forever tell your neighbor jesus was forever you're not convinced colossians 1:17 says this he jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Revelation 1.8 to this same John while on the island of Patmos, he gets this from Jesus. Jesus comes from heaven, visits with him on the Isle of Patmos. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is still to come, the all-powerful. Jesus shows up and he says, I am everything that ever existed before creation began. And when everything we know in existence that has been created has been changed or eliminated, I still will be I am. That's a bigger Jesus. You see, when we get that, when we stop claiming Christianity as a religion and, and a stamp on our driver's license or whatever, where, yeah, I'm a Christian, and we embrace Christ the one who Christianity is built around, and he becomes this bigger than life existence in our world, then it changes, it changes everything about our faith. It makes us willing to share something so good. It makes us willing to obey someone so great. A.W. Tozer, a great theologian and author, he says this about thinking big. He says, the mind looks backward in time until the dim past vanishes then it turns and looks into the future until thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion and there God is comfortably found at both locations unstirred and unaffected by either medical I just like that that when, you're, when your little fickle mind begins to think of past, it'll go back to your elementary school days. Anybody remember anything before kindergarten? Now, I'm not talking about young people. I'm talking about old people. Old people, okay? Th old people, 30-year-old and older. Okay, there you, that's old people. I'll throw myself right at, yeah. If I'm going to call myself, I'm called anybody old. I am one, okay? Now, you, you start thinking. I can what I remember, I remember kindergarten. It's about the earliest thing I remember. I remember my first girl, uh, girlfriend. Okay, her name was Sarah Whitehead, all right? I walked her to kindergarten. Yeah, you, you, can you imagine living in a day when you walked to kindergarten? You'd send your five-year-old walking to kindergarten, okay? And I would walk Sarah home from kindergarten, okay? I remember, I remember going to kindergarten. That's, that's about as far as I go. Now, I, beyond that, I, I can't remember something I experienced. I can only imagine. So when I read the Bible, I imagine things of days gone by. Okay, but no matter how far back you want to think or ponder or imagine, you just kind of wear yourself out and it runs out. Okay, just, it just kind of fizzles out. And then you start guessing, okay? And then turn around and think about the future. What's the future? Well, you know, this and this. And no matter how far out you go, you kind of run out of imagination. It just kind of dies out into oblivion. And A.W. Tozer says it well. At both ends of that, you'll find God comfortably seated, unmoved and unstirred by our puny little minds and how we embrace eternity. That's a bigger Jesus. And that's what John wants us to get. So when we talk about the win of Jesus, it's a bigger Jesus than we typically think of. Number two, the where was Jesus. Remember, we're talking about the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why. The where was Jesus. We'll tell you, neighbor, Jesus is and was with God. It says in John 1, 1, B, the second little phrase, it says, and the word, Jesus, was with God. 
All right? Now, I'm going to throw a little Greek at you, not because I'm trying to impress you, because I want you to know the, the depth of what he's trying to say. That word with, that, that, that the word that Jesus was with God is a Greek word pros, and it means to exist closely and to share a space. That just is cool, that he's hanging out with God. They're just together in eternity past, and he was right there with God, coexistent, uncoexistent created now this is this is where it gets difficult because we want to understand the origin of God right and maybe you don't own that let me just go ahead and tell you what the Bible says the Bible says that God has placed eternity in your heart you know what that means it means you can't run from it you have to think about is there life after this life? Is there an eternity? Is there really a heaven and a hell? Is there, you know, do we just, are we just worm dirt when we die and it's game over? You know, is there something bigger out there? It's because God has placed that in you. He's placed eternity, the thought of that, in you, okay? And, and so he, he, he says, uh, while you're thinking of that, um, it's okay not to have all the answers, all right? It's okay not to have all the answers. So often what an atheist does, an atheist says, and by the way, if there's a bee getting ready to attack me, somebody tell me. I'll take him out into oblivion. He'll find out, he'll find out his future. All right? Now, uh, what he does is he says, it's okay not to have all the answers. And uh, so, so what atheists do, they say, well, God said he existed. He was self-existent. He doesn't tell us how he existed. I can't believe in a God like that. Okay? And then we as believers sometimes, we struggle with God's, not knowing God's origin, okay? And let me tell you something. First of all, God never introduces himself and tells us his origin. He says, in the beginning, God, enough said. That's all you're getting, okay? God doesn't owe you. God doesn't owe me an explanation and a definition of his origin, how he became self-existent, how he was, uh, was eternally self-existent. He doesn't owe, owe you an explanation. Why? Because he created you and he created your mind so that you can't even begin to understand the depth of a self-existent, eternal God. You can't understand it, so he ain't telling you. Okay, so what the atheists do is say, I can't understand that, so I'm not buying into it. I will not give my life to a God that does not introduce himself and tell us how he even came into being. So you know what they do? They embrace something else. They start creating and fabricating and writing things that they can wrap their little silly minds around, like evolution. There's one for you. Like uh, karma. Okay, things, oh yeah, we can, we can, there's tangible, we can understand those. Meanwhile, they have lowered the standard of un their understanding. Now, let me just go ahead and be honest with you. I don't claim to be the most brilliant person on the planet or even in this room or my family for that matter. Okay, but this much I'm very proud of in my ignorance. When God said in the beginning, God and then he not, doesn't tell us where he came from, but he demonstrates the greatness of his godness by speaking everything into existence. Here I am in my simplicity, and I jump in and say, man, I like me a God like that. I like 
a God who understands I can't understand him. I like a God who says, even though you can't understand me, you can see what it is I do when I demonstrate the greatness of who I am. And I'm, I, I just like that. I, just, I, I don't want a God I can fully understand. Because when I think I fully understand God, I've brought him way down to our level. Or I've brought myself way up to a level that I am not. So it's okay not to know where God came from. It's okay not to have a detailed uh, description of God's origin. He doesn't give it because it's way too deep for who we are. So the where of Jesus points to a really big Jesus. All right? He's right there with God. The next one is the who was Jesus, right? So Jesus is God. That's who he is. We talked about it last week. Just tell your neighbor, Jesus is God. That's it. That somebody said, that's it. Say it, the whole thing. Jesus is God. That's it. That's it. Okay. Just, just go ahead and jump in with both feet because that's who he is. And if you fight back against that, he will not be your savior. Because a Jesus who is not God is a Jesus who cannot save you. Hmm. You see that? You can't do that. You can't separate him, make him a great prophet, a great teacher, a great man who, who was a historical figure, and him be Savior. And I'll explain as we go a little further. In John 1, 1, see, okay, it says, now the word was fully God. It says Jesus was fully God. No separation of identity, no separation of existence, no separation of being. Jesus is intricately woven into the Godhead. Now, we'll talk about it a little bit. You say, well, here you go again. That's just a little phrase in one single verse. You sure you're not taking this out of context? That's a strong statement. Okay, let's see if there's anybody else in the Bible that wants to weigh in on it. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 it says for in him Jesus all the fullness of the deity all the fullness of God lives in bodily form okay I'm not, I, I didn't stretch that still not convinced Titus chapter 2 verse 13 as we wait for the happy fulfillment of our hope in the glorious appearing of our great God who is Savior Jesus Christ 2 Peter 1.1, from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have been granted a faith just as precious as ours. Jesus himself claimed this. Listen to this one. John 10 verse 33. The Jewish leaders replied, we are not going to stone you, speaking to Jesus, for a good deed, but for blasphemy, because you, a man, are claiming to be God. Jesus himself claimed to be God. All of the authors of the New Testament embraced Jesus being God. Jesus is God. It's simply, uh, it's simply who he is. Now, let's, let's, let's talk about the Trinity. Who's heard the word Trinity used? Anybody Trinity? Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you it's not in the Bible, okay, the word. They don't have a Greek word for Trinity. It's just not there. However, the principle, the idea of it is fully there from the beginning of this book to the very end. I said it before. In, in Genesis, we find, seldom do you find all three of them revealed at the same time. But they do occasionally show up all together. In Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God, that's the Father. 
And it says, then he says, let there be light. He doesn't create the sun and the moon and the stars for light until a, a couple days later. This is Jesus coming into the picture to shine light. Why? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then it says that the, the world was formless, a void and void and formless, and, and, and uh, water was upon the earth, okay? And it says, then the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, began to hover or brood over it, to change it, the power of God through the Holy Spirit. You find all three of them right there at creation. Okay, and then you go, there's other places, very few. Then you get up into the New Testament, and you find the Gospels. And Jesus shows up as a man, excuse me, God shows up as a man whose name is Jesus. And he goes to the river to be baptized. And the Bible says when he was baptized, when he came up out of the water, this is Jesus, part of the triune Godhead, the part of the Trinity. He comes up out of the water, and a voice comes from heaven who is God the Father, the first part of the Godhead, who says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes down, hangs out on him. Okay? So you got all three of them again. And so what is the Trinity? By definition. And we talked about this last week, about how this was nailed down uh, 1,800 years ago. Okay? That early church embraced this fully. The Trinity states, because I want you to know this. The Trinity states that within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, okay? I want you to hear it. I want you to get it. Let's sink in. They are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each is a distinct person, yet each is identified as God, okay? When we talk about the Trinity, that's what we're talking about. And Jesus is part of the Trinity. He is part of the Godhead. All right? So when we talk about the who of Jesus, it points to a bigger Jesus. Number four is the what of Jesus. What was Jesus? Okay? Well, he was a man that we know, but Jesus is more than just a man. Although fully man, fully God, listen what Jesus really came for. In John, or what Jesus really is, excuse me. Jesus really is the creator of everything. Tell your neighbor, Jesus made you. <laughs> this is what I think is funny. Even people who reject Jesus, they're rejecting the one who made them, the one who holds them together, and the, the one who offers them life and yet they reject him listen, listen what it says in john 1 now we're going to go to verse 3 it says all things were created by him and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created everything made was made by that which was unmade everything existent has been formed by that which was pre-existent, okay? Jesus made everything. And, you know, we like to think we understand that. Some people more than others. You know, we've got college students. It's fresh in their minds. You know, you got protons, neutrons, and electrons, and occasionally throw in a moron, okay? And, and then... And then you got uh, molecular structure and atomic structure. All that stuff is real, okay? It's real. We know that, all right? We didn't create that. God just gave us, over time, the ability to understand how we're put together. 
But when you go back to the root source, you can fabricate some idea of how that all came into being. But the bottom line truth, God has told us he created it. And he created it with a word. And in the word, although seems surface and superficial, but behind those words spoken in Genesis is the depth of knowledge and understanding that has the, even the inclination of how to make that thing work and stay together. It is by the handiwork and the word of God through Jesus, his son, that we're even held together. I mean, we could just be a bunch of atoms flying around in the sky. But he put us together so that we're knit together with a purpose. And we're going to see that in just a few minutes. You say, well, I just don't know if Jesus created everything. Okay, that's fine. Colossians 1. Let's see what Colossians weighs in and says. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, let me, let me qualify. He's not, he hasn't been created. That's not what that means. It means he's the firstborn. It means the one born unto life, died and resurrected. He's the first one. He paints the picture and paves the way for us into eternity. Verse 16, for by him all things, by Jesus all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, the things visible, the things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I'm, I'm going to encourage somebody's heart right now. The last part of that, in him all things hold together. Listen, you may be here, and your life seems like it's absolutely coming apart. And many of us, who's had a part in their life where it seems like the seams just came out, and your world just began to crumble, and things just went south in a hurry? Anybody ever had that? I, I want to encourage you, if you have had that in the past, or if you have that now, and I'll warn those who have never experienced, there's probably one in the chamber with your name on it, and it's coming. When it comes, remember this verse in Colossians 1, verse 17. He holds it all together. So when it seems like it's coming unraveled and coming apart, Jesus says, hey, time out. If you'll let me, I got this. All right? He will hold you together in the worst, darkest point of your life. He holds it all together and he created it. Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Not only did Jesus create you, he created you with a purpose. Now sometimes we like to lower the purpose to this. What does he want me to do for a living? How does he want me to serve in the church? How does he want to be a better husband? How does he want me to be a better wife? How does he want me to be a better daddy or mommy? How does he, how does he want me to do this thing? Listen, push pa past that in all that you do. No matter where you find yourself, God's goal, Jesus the creator and sustainer of you, his goal for you is to give him glory. You get that? Who said amen? Somebody said amen. Amen. You, that's what the scripture said. You know what amen means? So be it. Look what he says. He says for, uh, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And like Clark said, amen. So be it. We got to own the fact that you're not here to give glory to yourself. You're not here to, glory, to give glory to your spouse, to glory to your boss, to give glory to your success, to give glory to everything else under the sun. You are here created formed and fashioned with a purpose and the overarching umbrella purpose of the reason all of us are here is to give God glory with your life. 
And it's good when we embrace that. We start understanding and pursuing that. And when we do, we understand a bigger Jesus. Romans 4, verse 11. It says, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. Isaiah 43, 7, the prophet says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, why? For my glory, says God. Whom I formed and made, you were made to give God glory. Now, John Piper says this, He says, God did not make the world first and foremost for you before himself. Everything is created to bring him glory, and that means you too. That is your chief aim, your highest purpose. You are to reflect him and his ways through your thoughts, your choices, and your actions in such a way that people look at you and they can't help but give glory to your God. Now, here's where it gets weird. People say, okay, I think I'm unpacking this. I think I'm, I'm diving in. I'm getting what it is you're talking about. So then they want to, a naysayer want to throw you a curveball. So what I'm hearing you say is Jesus is God. And you say, yeah, that's what I said. And what you're saying is Jesus being God, then he's perfect, right? Yeah, he's perfect. And Jesus being God created everything in his perfection. That's exactly what I said. Well, then they say, okay, if God is perfect... And he knows all things and created all things perfect. Why do we live in this world where babies are getting leukemia? People who live their life for God develop some disease, have a heart attack and die early, prematurely. Why do bad things happen in the lives of those who appear to be trying to be good? Just as much so as it does in the people who reject God and nothing they do is good. Why does that happen? And if we're not careful, it knocks us on our heels and we say, well, I never thought that far ahead. I got the answer. Because for tough questions, God often often gives the the easy answer. You want to know what the easy answer to a tough question like that is? It's this. Jesus created everything perfectly. He did not create it broken. He did not create it sinful. He did not create it imperfect. He created everything to the finest infinitesimal detail in its perfection but in it he left a will for it to choose to stay in the state that it was created in you say okay well what does that even mean okay Jude chapter 1 referring to angels because people say well then if he knew why did he create the devil he did not create the devil he created an angel whose name was Lucifer who was gifted and beautiful and alluring in the heavenly state with the other angels. But he gave even him the ability to choose. And he gave the other angels the ability to choose. And that's why it tells us a third of them followed Lucifer, who became the serpent, who became the devil, who is Satan. Jude 1.6 says, Angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. You see, he didn't create them that way. They rejected God and chose to get that way. All right? In Jeremiah chapter 17, talking about us, it says, Your ancestors, however, did not listen to me or pay any attention to me. They stubbornly refused to pay attention or to respond to any discipline. 
We, we have this nature. We have the ability to choose right and wrong. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man whose name was Adam, and death through one sin, that is the sin of the forbidden fruit, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, let me just unpack it a little bit more because this is one of the questions I probably hear more than anything else. Uh, this, trying to understand this. And I don't pretend to have an understanding on it, but I'll help you understand a little bit of it. Okay? And that is this. If God knew man was going to sin, why did he create them with the ability to choose knowing that they would sin and ultimately die? And ultimately then it would cost God, his own son who is God, Jesus, coming to this earth paying sin's debt on a cross. Why, if he knew all that was going to happen, why would he let that happen? There's an easy answer to a tough question. What is God all about? His glory. God's all about his glory. So I present you with a question. Where would God get more glory from? Creating mankind without the ability to choose. Creating the angelic existence without the ability to choose. And then asking them to love him. He created, what if he created robotic angels and robotic humanity without the ability to choose? So they, they, they have no choice. They just love him. You could say, well, there would be some glory in that. Not if he's making them love him. Not if he doesn't give them a choice. So what's the greater glory? To know before time ever began, before he created the first thing, before he said, let there be light. To know that they would all choose to reject him. Sending a message to the enemy camp, Satan and the demons. Sending a message that they were victorious over mankind. and had, that, that they had robbed all of mankind from God's presence. Only for God before time to make a plan for part of his triune self, Jesus. To come to this earth and die on a cross. To offer a rescue, and a redemption for all of those who had chosen against him. Where's the greater glory? <laughs> the greater glory is when Jesus says, listen, the devil thinks he won, but it ain't over yet. I gave them a choice, and they chose poorly. I'm going to go down there now and die myself to purchase them back if they'll just be willing to place themselves under my gift of grace on a cross at Calvary. That's where the glory's found. That's, that's where the glory's found. And so when we talk about the what of Jesus, it's a bigger, bigger Jesus. And number five, the final one, my favorite, the why. The why was Jesus. Why was Jesus? Why, why was there a Jesus? Why not another way? Why Jesus? Because Jesus is our rescuer of all of the things that God has ever done, of all of the things that God has ever created, the greatest act that he's ever done, not creation. It was coming to this earth to die to redeem it. And when he redeems us, he's, he's redeeming this broken world. Back to that question, why do bad things happen? Because we live in a fallen world. That's just it. 
I am a born-again, saved, sealed by the Holy Spirit, heaven-bound believer. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my King. I know if I die today, bam, I'm going into the presence of God through Jesus' Son and nothing I did to contribute to it. I know that. Meanwhile, though, I still live in this same old broken world. And so we're exposed to it too. When Jesus rescues the world, he rescues it one soul, one human being at a time. And then one day, he'll redeem it all. And he'll make a brand new creation. Listen to what John says about him in John 1 verse 14. He says, now the word became flesh. His word, Jesus, man, he put some skin on. And he took up residence. He hung out with us right here on this planet. And John says, and we saw his glory. They went to the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw him become, it reveal the godness of who he was. And, and, and now he knows, he says, the glory of the one and only, full of grace, full of truth, who came from the Father. Now, why did Jesus have to be a man? Why did God's plan of redemption, his plan of rescue, why did it have to be a man, a human being like us? First of all, to demonstrate the value of of humanity. We live in a world where the value of life is pathetic. We abort millions and millions of babies for the sake of convenience. People strap a bomb on themselves and walk into a crowded place and blow themselves up because there's no value for humanity. People will pick up a firearm and go into a theater or, or a club or a school and shoot uh, quote, innocent people that they don't even know? Why? People will buy video games by the billions of dollars and they'll just shoot and shoot and shoot, desensitizing them to the value of life. I want to remind you of something. Hum humanity, you, tell your neighbor, you, tell your neighbor, you, you are the pinnacle and the apex of all that he created. You, you personally. The capstone, the absolute point and peak of all he created, it wasn't the flower botanical kingdom. It wasn't the little tiny insect world. It wasn't the beautiful animal kingdom. It wasn't the billions of galaxies with billions of stars that he numbered and named and calls them to shine. That's not the greatness of all he created. The greatness is you. Because he formed and fashioned and created you in his own image. And he whispered his breath into your life. And so Jesus came to show, I wasn't just saying that thing about you're created in my image. I'm going to show you who I am. And he came in the form of a man. Number two. He came in the form of a man to show us what living by this is supposed to look like. That whole thing in Genesis, Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he says, yeah, it looks like me. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the prophets, all the history uh, channels, uh, uh, the, 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 the love chat, the love books, the, you know, the Psalms, all that stuff, it all looks like me. Jesus said, I'm going to show you what this is supposed to look like. You're supposed to love God with everything you have and love everybody else around you like you love yourself. That's what it's supposed to look like. And if it means dying for someone else, then that's what you do. Jesus 
came to this earth to demonstrate to us how to live, how to love, how to die, and he paved the way for us to live again. So Jesus did. So that's why he came as a human being. Thirdly, a body. He had to have a body that had blood flowing through his veins so that he could shed on a cross for our life. Why? Because Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, in the Old Testament, at each year they would have the sacrifice of, of atonement where they would sacrifice a calf or a, a goat or a, a bird or whatever they had, whatever they could afford and ever how big their family was. They would sacrifice these animals and it wouldn't eradicate. It wouldn't forgive the sin. It would just cover it up. It would cover it up until ultimately Jesus would come and he wouldn't cover it up. He would wash it away and make it completely go away. Verse 5 then in Hebrews 10 says, So when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. He's talking to the Father. But a body you prepared for me. Jesus is speaking of himself. Verse 7, So then I said, Here I am. I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book to do your will. He came to pay your debt. He came as a person to pay the sin debt of another person, you and me. Number four, he came to pay your debt. He had to feel your pain so he could feel your debt. Although God, Jesus is God, when he walked on this earth incarnated as, as a human being, he set aside much of his God, uh, much of his God. Uh, makeup. Hebrews 4 says, for we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne. When he was here, he didn't have any supernatural advantages for, for the sacrifice. He, he didn't have a, a celestial a celestial rescue party, although he could have. He, he didn't have a supernatural anesthetic to take away the pain. He took it all in fully human form. So when he paid the debt, when he felt the pain on his back, in his side, on his head, in his hands, in his feet, in his being, separated from God in that moment, so he could say, I did it for you. And now, since I've taken this all, all on, it is finished. It's finished. He did everything required. And then lastly, number five, Jesus came as a human being to take away all of our excuses. We got no excuses. He's done it all. All we have to do is receive what he has done on our behalf. See, people talk about sometimes being far from God. And this only came to me maybe a month ago this this image that we talk about being far from God because in our rebellion in our sin man the more we sin the further we get from God the more we sin only means the further we get from the will of God it doesn't mean the further we get physically from God because the moment that we realize that the God that we're running from still loves us as much as he ever did. And the moment we feel his invitation to repent and to step back under grace, the moment we turn, we don't have to run to him. He's been chasing us 
Oh boy, he's right there. He's right there. Maybe you're running. You think, man, I'm so, and the hardest stone cold heartedest atheist on the planet thinks he's running so far from God, God's right there breathing down on him. And all we do then is we say, I'm so sorry. And he says, hey, I'm right here. I'm right here. And he picks us up and he loves us and he washes us off in what Jesus did on a cross and lets us start all over again. And I'm telling you, that's a good story right there. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the good news of what Jesus came to do. Colossians 1 verse 18 says, Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And I pause. One day Jesus will have first place in everything. And the question is, on this very day, in this very moment, does he have first place in you? It goes on and says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus the Son. And through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or in heaven. The why of Jesus because he loves you that's why Jesus he created you to give him glory he allowed you to choose to sin and rebel against him all the while he never stopped loving you he came and he died a sinner's death on a cross for you and he's willing to exchange his perfection for your sinfulness what an exchange and who's it for John 1 Verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I want to tell you something. There's some confusion out there that all the people on the planet are children of God. They are not children of God. They are children of wrath and their father is the devil. Only when we receive what Jesus has done do we become adopted into the kingdom of God. Reclassified, retitled, renamed. I am now in Jesus a child of the most high God. And that's how we're supposed to live our life. And if you're here today and you claim Christianity, you should live like Christianity is real to you. You should, you should live with a bigger Jesus leading and being the Lord of your life. And listen, if you're here today and you've never received Jesus, this could be, as the Bible says, your day of salvation. That moment in time by the grace of God, for me, was when I was a 10-year-old boy. By the grace of God, maybe for you, it's today. Where you stop running and hiding in religion and this and that, and you simply, oh, wow. And he's right there, and he'll embrace you. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes. The response time today is simply this. Maybe you're a Christian. But your Jesus is way too small. And maybe this is the day that 
you claim a bigger Jesus in your life where he's much bigger than you yeah maybe this is the day where you you find yourself in this place where you realize maybe for the first time I'm not truly a child of God I've never given myself to Jesus for salvation and I've never made him the Lord of my life and there's something unsettling deep inside of me there's something that's unique where I feel like God is inviting me to into his presence and maybe in this moment you would feel yourself saying I, I want to do that today and you just don't know how I want to tell you you simply say God I don't know why I feel what I feel. I don't know why I feel like you love me in spite of me. I don't know why I feel like you are inviting me to turn and walk into your presence. But I'm willing to repent of my sin. I, I just changed my mind about life. I realize you made me for your glory. And you've done everything to forgive me and give me a new life and make me a new creature I'm turning to you in forgiveness and in repentance I want Jesus to come into my life I want to be your forever child forgive my sin save me now in Jesus name I thank you for hearing my prayer